Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Kat Arney, while Sarah Custer-Perry will be taking us back to this week in science history. Coming up, how typhoons can cause slow earthquakes. No one had realised that actually you can trigger this species of earthquake, this type of tectonic activity, by the weather. But you have to remember, these storms are moving massive amounts of air, weighing huge amounts in terms of the amount of pressure they're applying to the ground. So I'm not altogether surprised, it's just that we hadn't really spotted it before. How Betelgeuse, a nearby star in the constellation Orion, has been shrinking and now could explode. If it did go supernova, it'd be brighter than the moon and you'd be able to see it during the day for a couple of months. So Orion wouldn't have a right-hand shoulder anymore. And we're joined by Victoria Gill, who announces a brand new element, Anunbium. And to create element 112, or Anunbium as it's temporarily been known, they fired a beam of, of charged zinc atoms or zinc ions at lead atoms in the hope that some of them would fuse together and, and form a new element, and so they did. But these fusion reactions don't happen very often. You have to fire this beam at these lead atoms for a very long time and you only get a few successful fusion reactions. In 1996, they only created or saw one atom of element 112. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to 1946 and the death of John Logie Baird, pioneer of television. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have made an interesting discovery that they think that typhoons, these are big storms, could trigger earthquakes. There's a paper in Nature this week. This is Chi Ching Lu and uh, two researchers in the US, Alan Lind and Selwyn Sachs. And they've been working in Taiwan because Chi Ching Lu is at the Academica Sinica in Taiwan. And Taiwan is an extraordinary place when it comes to geology because the Philippines plate is marching into the Eurasian plate and the two are coming together at eight centimetres a year. So if you imagine if you had your house on that, uh, you'd potentially be seeing your garden disappear at the rate of eight centimetres a year. So it's really quite dramatic. But what they're very interested in is what happens when storms arrive. What they did was to put some strain gauges, these are very, very sensitive ground stretch measuring devices, down boreholes 200 metres underground, and they started to measure how the ground was moving. But what was really surprising was they, they realised quite quickly that they could detect the arrival of typhoons, big storms that came in over the land. And what this did was to make differences on the amount of strain they could pick up. Now, why should that happen? Well, when a storm comes, obviously it's associated with very low pressure. So when the pressure drops, the ground swells up. So they thought, well, that's obvious, we can explain that. So why is it then that on a number of occasions we saw not the ground swelling up, but for some reason the ground shrank? Why should that happen? And the only explanation they can come up with, looking at the profiles, if you, if you look in the paper, I mean, there are all these very, very characteristic profiles which fit with the ground changing very dramatically whenever these storms come. They think that this is a slow earthquake. And what a slow earthquake is, is rather than an abrupt, very short duration of lots of energy being released and lots of shaking, a slow earthquake is where the movement happens a bit gently indolently over hours to days and so what's happening is that the storm comes in the ground swells under the storm because the pressure is low but because the sea doesn't change the pressure on the seabed because when you have low pressure all that happens is more water comes in and adds to the height of the sea so the pressure on the seabed stays the same the effect is to stretch open the fault on land this makes the fault slip so you have this slow earthquake phenomenon and 
that's why you see the association between the storm and the earthquake. And they actually say that these slow earthquakes could be protecting Taiwan from much more serious earthquakes because they're basically letting out the energy gently and slowly so that instead of getting lots of energy built up over many years and then suddenly going very dramatically, you just get this gentle, indolent nudge every so often, which just keeps things ticking over. And, it, and that's why, despite this very dramatic plate movement of eight centimetres a year, you don't get earthquakes. It seems crazy that something like a weather system could actually affect tectonic plates. Are there any other examples where that, that's happening, or is this the first time that they've found that the weather can affect plate tectonics? This is why it's a paper in Nature this week, because no one had realised that actually you can trigger this species of earthquake, this type of tectonic activity, by the weather. So, yes, but you have to remember these storms are moving massive amounts of air, weighing huge amounts in terms of the amount of pressure they're applying to the ground or not applying when the storm comes in. So I'm not altogether surprised. It's just that we hadn't really spotted it before. Very elegant. And it's not actually creating the earthquake. It's just triggering. It's something which would have happened anyway, not necessarily on that day. Basically, the fault is primed to go, and it's the straw that's breaking the camel's back, yeah. Okay, now, Betelgeuse, as well as being a classic film, is one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's Orion's right right shoulder, and it's one of the largest stars we know of. It's a red supergiant with a mass about 20 times larger than the sun and a radius about 1,000 times larger than the sun. So if it was sitting in the solar system, it would actually fill up the whole of the solar system out to Jupiter's orbit. Now, this week, Charles Towns from Berkeley, California, has announced something quite interesting. The radius has shrunk by about 15% over 15 years um, and it seems that this contraction is actually getting faster now this might seem a bit so I mean the star is actually shrinking the star is shrinking the outer layers of the star are shrinking but would it normally do the opposite then would, would you expect as a star ages for it to swell up or at least stay roughly the same well this kind of star is actually quite interesting it's actually it's an incredibly fast burning star it's only about eight or nine million years old and it's already in the final stages of its life the sun for example is about five billion years old and basically, it's so big, it's about 20 times heavier than the sun, that it's compressed it's, all the gas in it really, really high to high pressures. And the higher the pressure, the higher the temperature, the faster it reacts. So it's already burnt all of its hydrogen. It might, what it's burning now, they're not quite sure. But what happens to these stars? First off, they burn hydrogen. Then they, then they kind of, the core collapses, blows the outside out into this huge red giant. And the core then starts burning helium. Then they can start burning carbon, neon, oxygen, and then silicon. And eventually, if if this contraction is something to do with it finishing burning silicon, um, but burning to silicon, um, there's no more reactions that can go on. And eventually, there's nothing to have left. So the core collapses and collapses and collapses until it turns into essentially a huge atomic nucleus. It turns into a neutron star. And this releases an immense amount of energy, about 20% of its rest mass. So immense amounts. This creates a supernova and just blows the whole star to pieces. This happens on the other side of the universe. We have various satellites and telescopes designed to spot these things, gamma ray bursts and, and X ray flashes. Yeah. They're incredibly intense and incredibly bright, even over those vast distances. This star's not very far away, so what would be the consequence for us then? It's about 600 light years away, so it's not, it's close, but not that close. So it shouldn't actually be very dangerous to us, but it was, if it did go supernova, there's no, I mean, it has lots of stages, it might, it expands and contracts lots of times, but if it did go supernova, it'd be brighter than the moon. Uh, for for how long? The full moon, uh, for a couple, of, and you'd be able to see it during the day for a couple of months. So, and That's then amazing. The, Orion wouldn't have a right hand shoulder anymore. Oh dear! But uh, obviously, there'll be no problem spotting it. But um, this will obviously offer astronomers an unprecedented view of 
this kind of process, presumably, because we normally have to look miles away and often we catch them after they've already happened. So this would be amazing if this actually happened. Yeah, if it did happen. Um, they've never actually watched a star in all the um, sort of precursors of a supernova, which is why they have actually don't know whether this one's going to go off at the moment. So because they, they always see them after they go bang, they suddenly get really exciting and really big, but they haven't been watching it because there's billions of stars in the sky and they can't watch them all. Terrific. So, so, so did, November the 5th might come early for Betelgeuse. You never know, cat. <laughs> it's quite a terrifying thought. Uh, from the the height of the stars down to the human body. And uh, there's a new paper in Nature Neuroscience this week about Huntington's disease. Now, this is a, a degenerative disease of the nervous system, and it normally sets in when a person's in their 30s or their 40s. But they don't show any signs of disease until that age. Now, over a decade ago, uh, researchers did discover that sufferers do have a fault in a specific gene, and it makes a protein called Huntington. But what's not clear is if you have this faulty protein... Why don't you get the effects of the disease from birth or from early in your life, uh, except it, it comes on later in life? It's a great mystery. And so um, researchers at the University of Illinois wanted to answer this question and a team led by Scott Brady may have discovered how Huntington actually wrecks its, its havoc on the nervous system. Now, what they did is that they discovered that the faulty version of Huntington, this protein that's found in, in patients, it switches on an enzyme called JNK3. It's only switched on in nerve cells. Now, if there's uh, faulty Huntington, this activation of this protein blocks transport in nerve cells. Now, this is really bad news because nerve cells are very, very long cells. They have a cell body, and then they have long fibres that go out through your body and take the messages to your limbs, you know, from your brain down to your toes. And the faulty protein essentially stops nerve cells from shuttling proteins down these long nerve fibres, um, which obviously spells pretty bad news for nerve function. Um, so that it causes eventually the lack of function in the nerves, causes the cells to die off and leads to Huntington's disease. So, uh, given that they've found that, I mean, the big question that everyone's going to be asking is, OK, so you've identified one mechanism for the people who carry that gene and are, and are therefore potentially destined to get Huntington's disease. What can we do about it? Well, it's a really interesting one. And for a start, it explains why the symptoms of Huntington's only come on later in life, because they think that basically when you're younger, your nerves can kind of cope with being a bit broken <laughs> with this transport mechanism not working properly. But as you get older and your nerves sort of get a bit old and knackered, really, the fact that they have this fault in transport means that you start to get these symptoms and nerves dying off. And once they start dying off and they, they start having this lack of transport, they're much more likely to die off. Um, and also what's interesting is that they think that this may be linked to other neurodegenerative diseases, things like Alzheimer's um, and other kind of diseases where the nerves start to die off. Um, so at the moment, you know, this is a very early discovery, but could potentially lead to some treatments for not only Huntington's, but other kinds of neurodegenerative diseases as well. If we can find out what's the problem with the shuttling system and how maybe we can reactivate it or keep it going, then you could either treat or, or maybe even prevent the onset of the disease in the first place. Yeah, indeed, very important, especially given that we think we have an ageing population and potentially uh, about one person in five over the age of 80 can get Alzheimer's disease. So if the same goes for that as goes for Huntington's disease, then obviously this could be very important. Mm, Thank you, Kat. Absolutely. Now from brain diseases to uh, something else entirely, which is the question of plant helicopters. Now, have you seen those wonderful things that sycamore trees, maples, um, hornbeams, 
when they make their seeds, they produce these little things which they flutter down and they whirl down like a helicopter, helicopter don't they? Yeah, yep. we used to collect them when we were kids and like flick them around. Well, the tree obviously does that because they remain airborne for a period of time. They can get blown by the wind and this can carry the seeds away from the parent tree and that's beneficial because it's a way of dispersing your seeds. If you get your seeds as far from the parent tree as possible, then you have a tree not competing with its parent for nutrients and light, moisture, that kind of thing. So that's obvious. But the key question is, why, when you do measurements, do these helicopter seeds stay in the air for much longer than they should? That was the question that was bothering a couple of researchers, David Lentink and uh, Michael Dickinson. They're two researchers in America. Uh, David Lentink's from uh, Holland, but he's actually working in Harvard at the moment, and Michael Dickinson's based in Caltech. So they've and basically been flicking these helicopter seeds around in the lab. Yes, they have, and, and very elegantly too. Uh, they got a paper in Science this week uh, to answer this very question. They actually started by making a model of these seeds because the best way to do science is to make a complicated structure into something simple where you can control the parameters. You make a model of it where you eliminate all the variables and just focus on what you think is going on and you identify, therefore, what's going on. So they made a sort of robot, well, they had a robot, which was used to study how insect wings fly. So they thought, let's modify this and let's turn this into a model of these helicopter seeds to see how they work. And this, they've actually got the robot working and it solved the problem for them. And Michael Dickinson explained to me a little bit about it earlier this week. So what we did is reconfigure this robotic insect that we have here at Caltech called Robofly. So Robofly... Um, is, a, is a large scaled insect that flaps its wings back and forth in a giant vat of mineral oil. And, and what we did was reconfigure this robot so that the wings twirled around through the oil just as a maple seed does as it twirls to the ground. And we could measure the forces created by this model seed as well as, as visualize the movement of fluid um, created by the, the moving seed. And what they basically found when they did this was that the flow of air, in this case they visualised that by using oil to study where the oil went, but that means the same for air, was exactly the same in these seeds as the way in which insects fly. One of the secrets of insect flight is that as the insect sweeps its wing back and forth, it, it does it at what an aerodynamicist would say, a very high angle of attack. And as it sweeps through the air, it actually creates a little tornado-like sort of swirling vortex along the front edge of the wing or the leading edge of, of the wing. But it's basically, imagine a tornado that's sort of fallen on its side. And it's the low pressure that's created by that swirling vortex that is able to allow the insect to create the forces that it needs to stay in the air. So basically... These trees are doing exactly the same as an insect's wing. They create these little miniature tornadoes. If you look at the paper here, can you see this beautiful whirlwind effect on the side of the uh, wing? This is actually done in a wind tunnel. So they also did some experiments with real seeds and a wind tunnel to demonstrate the effect. And basically, this is a beautiful example of convergent evolution. The, the insect has arrived via evolution at a way to make this happen by making these low-pressure areas on the side of its wing, and so have the trees. Isn't that incredible? So thank you very much to David Lentink and uh, Michael Dickinson, who explained that to me this week. Dave. Very neat. Now, if you're an archaeologist and you look at a site, what's the first thing you want to know about it? Well, basically, how old it is, presumably. Yeah, right. after that, is it going to be worth millions, possibly in the back of your mind, is how old it is. Now, there's various ways of, of doing that so far. One of the biggest ones I use is carbon-14 dating. The problem is that only works if you've got some carbon, something organic in the material you're trying to date. And organic things get eaten by bugs. They disappear. 
so you don't always find it. So there's lots and lots of archaeological sites which are very, very difficult to date. Now, one of the most common things you do find on archaeological sites is pottery. It's dirt cheap. Um, you can't recycle it. People, it's essentially disposable. It's been disposable for tens of thousands of years. People smash it. They just throw it in a pit. So if you've got some way of dating pottery, that would be ideal for archaeologists. Now, um, archaeologists, no one's been able to do that so far, but have a Moira Wilson and colleagues may have come up with a solution. When you make pottery, you fire it. You heat the clay up to a temperature between 1,000 and 1,400 degrees Celsius, which sinters it, causing the particles of the clay to stick together. And crucially, it drives the water out of some of those minerals which make up the clay. As soon as the clay cools down, a very slow reaction between these minerals and water starts. Now, it's easy to measure the amount of water in a pot. Just dry out the pot normally um, to get rid of the water amongst the grains and then cook it for six, at about 600 degrees centigrade for a few hours and you measure the difference in weight. Different pottery takes up water at different rates, but the rate at which it starts taking up water for a couple of days after you've just dried it out predicts how it would have taken up water for the next couple of hundred years very accurately. And crucially, as Moira told us... The reaction is sustained by an incredibly small quantity of water, so there's, there's actually sufficient moisture in the atmosphere to keep the reaction going. So it doesn't actually matter whether your brick is, is sitting on the table or it's sitting at the bottom of a lake. As long as there's enough water there to sustain the reaction, any excess water, for example, if the material is saturated, doesn't contribute to the reaction, it just sits there doing nothing. In fact, the only thing which does affect, affect this rate of uptake of water seems to be the temperature, which is going to be reasonably constant over, say, southern Britain or somewhere. So you can calibrate against that by getting a load of pots you know the age of, and you can make remarkably accurate predictions. So this is a much better way of doing things, potentially, than carbon dating, which has a number of problems associated with it. This is actually very, very easy. It seems to work. They've dated various bricks. They've dated Roman brick, which is 2,000 years old, some um, King Charles sort of um, area. They did have one problem with medieval brick from Canterbury, which they kept dating at 60 years old, and it really confused them. So they worked out that there'd been a fire during the Second World War, which had refired the pot or the brick. And um, reset the, the timeline. the time clock. But, so. of course, that's always going to be potentially a problem, I suppose, yeah, isn't it? with any system like this. Brilliant. Ingenious, though. Thank you, Dave, for that. Now, also this week, scientists have come up with a way, uh, a reason for you to tear up that periodic table which is sitting on the wall of your classroom or perhaps in your chemistry laboratory and replace it with a new one. And that's because we've got a new element to add to it. And here to tell us about that new element is someone who occasionally contributes to The Naked Scientist. She's also a BBC science reporter, and that's Victoria Gill. So why have we got this new element, Victoria? Well, this is element 112, or ununbium, um, called that because its atomic mass, the mass of its nucleus, is um, 112. And it was discovered by Professor Sigurd Hoffman um, in 1996, actually, but it was such a, a sort of tricky experiment to replicate that it's taken all of this time for the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, which is the official maker and formulator of our ubiquitous and wonderful periodic table, to recognise it and credit Hoffman and his team at the Centre for heavy iron research in, in Darmstadt in Germany with its discovery. How um, did they actually make the new element, Victoria? So they're using a particle accelerator and, and they're essentially firing a, a beam of ions at a, at a target and fusing two nuclei together. Um, this is a very tricky thing to do when you get to the, the very heavy elements of the periodic table because these fusion reactions require a lot of energy. And to create element 112, or ununbium as it's temporarily been known, they fired a beam of, of charged zinc atoms or zinc ions at lead atoms in the hope that some of them would fuse together and, and form a new element, and so they did. And what's very tricky about this is that 
these elements are very unstable. As soon as they form, they actually just start to fall apart. The, the nuclei start to just emit energy. But that's quite useful because you can detect the energy that they're emitting and use that to estimate the size of the nucleus so you can tell that you have a new element. But these fusion reactions don't happen very often. You have to fire this beam at these lead atoms for a very long time and you only get a few successful fusion reactions. In 1996, they only created or saw one atom of element 112. But other teams have had to replicate those experiments in order that IUPAC, the, the society that draws up our periodic table, can recognise that discovery and say, yes, this is officially a new element and we will add it to your periodic table. So that's hardly a massive amount of money in the bank in terms of this four atoms in the last 12 years. But where on the periodic table would we put this if we were to, to add the, the square today? Where would we be adding this? Well, it's a metal. It would go underneath mercury on the periodic table. That's where its square would be. And in actual fact, because it's been around for, for so long, because we've known about it for so long, other teams have done some experiments on it to find that its properties are very similar to that group and it fits quite nicely into that group. Given that it hangs around for such a short space of time, I mean, looking at the half-lives of some of the isotopes of element number 112, uh, we're talking less than half a minute. Why is this useful? Well, this is about really finding out sort of how atoms work and how matter works. And in actual fact, what Professor Hoffman's team are doing in the longer term is looking for what they've referred to as the island of stability. So they think there's a whole new class of elements which have electron shells much further out that are, that are full, which will be able to hang around for a lot longer. So you're, you're dealing with whole new groups of elements and matter that behaves in a completely different way. And given, as you say, that they think there might be the prospects of getting very big elements built the same way, but way beyond the size of this one, could this therefore be used as something like a stepping stone? So you could build some of this and then very quickly add some more to it to get you into the realms of those very big atoms that might have all these exciting properties. That's right, because... If, as we're seeing, atoms behave and, and are built in the way that we would expect and these fusion reactions are working in the way that we would expect, then we can sort of incrementally build these experiments to carry out new fusion reactions and build atoms in exactly the same way. We just need bigger particle accelerators, better equipment, and we can get there in the end. It's all, it's all just sort of stepping stones, as you say. Thank you very much, Victoria. That's Victoria Gill. Um, she was explaining how the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, also known as IUPAC for short, have confirmed the existence this week of a brand new element. It was actually developed in the 1990s, of course, but had to be proved to exist. And they've given it the exciting name of unumbium temporarily. That's un un and by in Latin, ununbium. But I'm told that IUPAC, they're going to be considering a new name for it to give it its official name in the next few weeks. They will listen to what the general public think too. So if you've got a name, you think that this element should have a certain name, tell us what you think and also tell IUPAC as well. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now we join Sarah Castor-Perry to find out what happened this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1946 the death of John Logie Baird, the pioneer of television. Although his mechanical television system was abandoned in the late 1930s in favour of electronic television, it was still an important period in the evolution of television and some of the techniques still have applications today. Baird continued to be a prominent figure in television technology right up until his death. Baird was born in 1888 in Scotland. Even as a young man, his interest in electrical communication was clear. 
he used to rig up makeshift telephone exchanges in his bedroom to talk to his friends across the street. He attended university in Glasgow, but unfortunately his degree was cut short by the start of the First World War. Unable to serve in the army because of his health, he became an electrical engineer, then in 1923 decided to move to London to pursue his dream of seeing by wireless, using apparatus he'd built himself out of old tea chests, hat boxes and a bicycle lantern. Viewing moving images on a screen is not the same as viewing people moving about in real life. Television creates an illusion of motion by refreshing the image on the screen line by line so fast that our brains interpret the images as moving. In his early apparatus, Baird used a version of what is known as a Nipkoff disc to help capture the images. This is a disc of metal or cardboard with a series of holes spiralling into the centre that allow light through a viewing window to a photocell that converts the changing light levels coming through the holes into electrical pulses, a process known as rasterization. These pulses were transmitted along telephone lines to a neon light that was viewed through another Nipkoff disc rotating at the same time as the original. The flashing of the light viewed through the rotating disc built up the picture of the object. As the disc rotated, each hole would produce a scan line that together made up the picture. Baird's disc had only 30 holes, meaning that the final image was made up of only 30 lines. In comparison, a modern television that uses cathode ray technology would have around 600 scan lines making up the picture. Baird was the first to pass several milestones in the development of television. He made the first transmission of a moving object in 1924, and in 1926 he presented the first transmission of live, moving, monochrome images to members of the Royal Institution and a reporter from the Times in his London laboratory. In 1927, he broadcast the first long-distance transmission from London to Glasgow, and in 1928, his assistant Benjamin Clapp travelled with a televisor for receiving the images to New York, where it successfully received a broadcast from Baird in London. He followed this series of incredible breakthroughs later in 1928 with the first transmission of colour images. However, Baird was not the only innovator working on television, and he was dealt a blow when the American Philo Farnsworth's electrical television apparatus began to overtake his mechanical methods in terms of quality and ease of use. The BBC, which had been using Baird's system since 1930, decided to switch to electrical television after a successful six-month trial. The last mechanical television broadcast was made in 1937. Baird continued to work and innovate in the world of television, patenting systems for both fully electric colour television using cathode ray tubes, which are still used in non-flat screens today, and 3D television, which he was working on at the time of his death. Since his death, his legacy has remained. He is recognised as a major figure in the invention of television, something that now plays such a huge role in our lives, both in education and entertainment. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how this week in 1946 saw the death of John Logie Baird, one of the fathers of modern-day television. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney, Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry, along with our guest, BBC reporter Victoria Gill. The Naked Scientist newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the Newsflash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. Oh, 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 oh,
The Naked Scientist's Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.